0: Last time we spoke about the long and bloody patrol of Carlson's Raiders. Shoji and his men were in for a nasty surprise when they disappeared into the jungle for a long march back to the 17th Army HQ, but they were not to be alone. Carlson's Raiders hunted them down for over a month, killing 488 Japanese at the cost of just 16 marine lives. Shoji's main body had been reduced to just 800 men when they finally rejoined the 17th Army HQ. Over in the Bunagona Front, the Australian-American forces fell into a bitter stalemate despite two weeks of trying to find weaknesses at either area. The concealed Japanese bunkers were taking a heavy toll on the Allies, but ultimately the Japanese were just prolonging the inevitable, as they had nowhere to run. Then we finished off with the Battle of Brisbane, where a couple of Yanks got a bit handsy with the local gals, prompting some brawls with the Aussies. Yet today, we are venturing back to Starvation Island and Green Hell. This episode is the Battle of Tassafaronga. Welcome back to the Pacific War Podcast week by week. I'm your beautiful host, Craig Robson. Before we can begin, I just want to remind you all that this podcast is only made possible through the efforts of Kings and Generals over at YouTube. Perhaps you want to learn a bit more about World War II? Kings and Generals has an assortment of episodes on World War II and much, much more. So go give them a look over on YouTube. So please, subscribe to Kings and Generals over at YouTube and continue to help us produce this content by checking out www.patreon.com slash Generals. And hey, don't forget about our sister podcast over at the Age of Conquest, the Fall and Rise of China podcast written and narrated by me. And if after all that, you are still hungry for some more history, why don't you check out my personal channel, the Pacific War Channel over at YouTube, where I just finished a series on many of the Medal of Honours earned on Guadalcanal and I'm now performing a seven-part series on China's warlord era. Give it a look and it means a lot to me. After the naval battle of Guadalcanal, the Americans decided more troops and supplies had to go to the island, the 1st Marine Division was beyond renewal. Plans were drawn up to finally withdraw the Marine Division and replace them with army troops, but limited shipping resources governed how it was all going to go down. On November the 16th, Halsey took some key steps on the logistical front, by placing the control of cargo discharge and loading at Noumea over to the army. With the army taking the reins, they began to plan how to finally destroy the remaining Japanese forces on Starvation Island. Now, on the Japanese front, the losses over the past few months on Starvation Island were catastrophic. A report on the strength of the forces on November the 20th showed that 29,117 troops had landed on Guadalcanal since August the 7th. With a reduction of those killed, evacuated, hospitalized, or very sick, there was only about 18,295 men. Of that total, it was estimated 12,775 were actually fit for combat. Imperial headquarters now recognized General Haikatake could not effectively command both Guadalcanal and New Guinea. Therefore, jurisdiction for the New Guinea campaign was given to Lt. Gen. Hataza Adachi and his new 18th Army. Lt. Gen. Hitoshi Imamura was given command of the new 8th Area Army, now responsible for the 17th Army on Guadalcanal, and the 18th Army on New Guinea. Imamura was notified that the 17th Army would be reinforced so that it could perform a large-scale offensive to seize Guadalcanal around January the 20th of 1943. In addition to reinforcements, 135 aircraft would also be added to help. To be able to get everything necessary to Guadalcanal and New Guinea, this required significant diversion of shipping from essential occupations critical to Japan's war economy. To put it simply, they were beginning to eat their limbs to keep themselves alive. Imamura was confronted with a strategic problem of immediate concern. General MacArthur's offensive against Buna-Gona had significantly Diverted attention. If the Allies took Bunagona, they would have airstrips just 340 miles away from Rabaul, the hub of Japanese operations in the South Pacific, and the key to attacking Truk. Allied air bases at Bunagona would also threaten Ley and Salamaua, challenging the Southern Resources area. If the Allies continued west, they could endanger the Philippines and the Dutch East Indies. To the combined fleet, the loss of Guadalcanal paled before the host of other hazards posed by losing New Guinea. Thus, priority shifted there. The IGN shared their insights with Imamura, advocating for stronger counterattacks at Buna, using the 21st Brigade and other elements of the 17th Army, earmarked for Guadalcanal. Imamura initially declined to adapt to this course of action, but after some reflection, he authorized the movement of the 21st Brigade to New Guinea for a counterattack at Buna. Imamura formally assumed command at Rabaul on November the 26th and began to mingle with the commanders in the South Pacific. One of those commanders was Colonel Sugita, who presented him with a detailed report of the situation on Guadalcanal, heavily implying they should just withdraw from it. Imamura refused to accept what he deemed a defeatist ideal. Imamura then received more information from Major Takahiko Hayashi about the 17th Army's situation. This report indicated the IGN was not meeting demands from Guadalcanal, and that there was a major food crisis going on. 17th Army stocks of meat and vegetables stood nearly exhausted, and even rice and barley would be all consumed by that very day. The report also indicated that those on Guadalcanal unable to walk were placed in dugouts on the front lines, and a few relatively healthy units were used for patrols and scouting. But to give more of an idea of the hardship, one major, Nishiyama, acting as the commander of the 228th Infantry, scribbled in his diary that his only food for three to four days had been a single dried plum, and that one of his officers told him this. Rice. I really want rice. I want to give my men as much as they want. That is the only wish I have. Even when motors are falling like a squall, or the land is reshaped by bombs, I don't worry, but I can't stand looking at my men becoming pale and thin. Alongside the food problem was a lack of medical supplies, which compounded together meant the spread of disease. Resupply of the 17th Army became an urgent concern of the IGN on November 16th. The Cactus Air Force and the current cycle of bright, moonlit nights promised to make using the Tokyo Express very costly. The IGN began a search for alternatives. On November 16th, the combined fleet ordered the Advanced Expeditionary Force to continue anti-shipping patrols, but reassigned the bulk of the submarine force to a new mission, to move food to Guadalcanal and Buna. For three weeks, 16 submarines each loaded with around 20 to 30 tons of supplies left Rabaul and came to Kamimbo. The presence of the Cactus Air Force and torpedo boats frustrated the first landing efforts on November the 24th, but the next day the I-17 managed to land around 11 tons of supplies. Each night after, till the end of November, saw 20 to 32 tons of goods reach Kamimbo. Each submarine load represented perhaps a day's worth of food for the 17th Army but the supplies had to be brought by hand miles through the jungle to the men at the front, and this seriously impaired the system. The submarine service was labeled Maratsu, after the Japanese equivalent of the United Parcel Service or Federal Express. Maratsu was a dangerous activity. The I-4 would sink on November the 20th from an enemy attack, making the IGN cringe. The IGN desperately wanted to replace submarines and destroyers doing supply runs with smaller motor or sailing craft. RJM planners envisioned the establishment of three bases between Munda and Guadalcanal, and four between Rabaul and Buna. Small vessels would be able to move at night from one base to the next, where they could be concealed during the day. This idea was dubbed the chain transport. They selected Wickham Anchorage on a small island named Vangunu, just due southeast of New Georgia, as the first base for a Guadalcanal run. On November the 27th, six destroyers installed 600 men of the 1st Battalion, 229th Infantry at Wickham. Two small vessels, the Kikumaru and Azusa Maru, loaded with anti-aircraft weapons, provisions, and another 300 men were sent to Wickham. This attempt did not go as planned. The Cactus Air Force had grown from 85 to 188 aircraft, and many were now assigned to anti-submarine and search patrols. Unchallenged over Guadalcanal, the Cactus Air Force began to make regular patrols near Rikata Bay and Munda. Search planes found the Kikumaru and the Azusa Maru, and strike missions were sent on the 28th and 29th which easily destroyed them before they could land a small fraction of their cargo. While this was seemingly a small event, it also meant another Japanese detachment was short on food now at Hickam. And more importantly, it completely cancelled the chain transport program. You get a real feeling that the Japanese are, as we would say in English, grasping at straws. That chain transport program was one of the dumbest ideas they came up with. Thus, the Tokyo Express was a mainstay, and it required refinement. A new idea was formed to aid the Tokyo Express. Sailors began to clean heavy drums, the same drums that are used for oil and gasoline, and they filled them with 330 pounds of rice and barley. They loaded around 200 to 240 drums joined by ropes in clusters aboard some destroyers. Now, once these destroyers were close enough to Guadalcanal, these clusters were thrown overboard near landing points and pulled ashore by a central line. The method required only 21 destroyer runs per month to feed the mouths of about 20,000 or so men, dramatically reducing exposure time. Admiral Tanaka's reinforcement unit was given the first of five scheduled runs using the new drum technique. Tanaka assigned four vessels designated as the first transport unit to each drop 240 drums off at Tassaparanga, and two other vessels designated as the second transport unit to drop 200 drums each into the waters near the mouth of the Umasanani River. Over on the American side, Halsey's forces rebounded rapidly after the bloody battles of mid-November. After the Battle of Guadalcanal, King apparently marched to the Joint Chiefs of Staff and in the words of Admiral Leahy, he did so with his sword in hand, and King demanded the release of ships from the Atlantic and the Mediterranean theaters to replace the losses in the South Pacific. This allowed for two cruisers, three escort carriers, and five destroyers to sail to the Solomons, with a lot more to come later. But in the meantime halsey's carrier power would be doubled by a new group built around the refurbished saratoga and the wounded enterprise this task force would have battleships north carolina washington and the new indiana on november the 24th rear admiral kincaid formed task force 67 and his mission was to thwart japanese landings kincaid like admiral norman scott faced the daunting task of preparing his forces for night combat On November the 27th, he took the first step by learning from the recent battles and he made sure to maximize the use of SG radar. Destroyers equipped with it would scout 10,000 yards in front of any task force, and Kincaid intended to use the radar to his advantage to employ surprise torpedo attacks during engagements. However, before Kincaid could initiate these plans, he was suddenly swapped by Admiral King to the North Pacific and Rear Admiral Carlton Wright would take over in the South Pacific. Wright met with Kincaid and adapted Kincaid's plans. Halsey ordered Wright to sortie as soon as possible and to take Task Force 67 to Guadalcanal through the Longo Channel, so he could arrive near Tasafaranga by November the 30th to intercept an expected Japanese reinforcement group composed of eight destroyers and six transports. Wright's task force of four heavy and one light cruiser with four destroyers were en route to Guadalcanal while Tanaka's group departed Shortland. Tanaka took a route specifically to avoid aerial detection, going around Bougainville Strait. But despite his best efforts, an Allied plane shadowed his unit for over an hour, after 9.30am on November the 30th. In the afternoon, a Japanese search plan warned Tanaka of 12 enemy destroyers and 9 transports off Guadalcanal, prompting him at 2.30 to signal his ships to expect some night action. Tanaka gave the order, If it comes to it. Destroy the enemy without regard for the unloading of supplies. The search plane shadowing Tanaka never radioed its findings, but Coast Watcher Paul Mason, over at the southern end of Bougainville, did report seeing the group on the morning of November the 30th. The Coast Watcher's message was relayed to Wright, and as Wright's group approached the Longo Channel after sunset, they encountered a small convoy of three transports and three destroyers. Halsey had detailed destroyers Lampson and Lardner from the convoy led by Commander Abercrombie to join Task Force 67. While the intention was good, Wright did not possess the time nor the means to pass operational signals to the new vessels, so he placed the Abercrombie Group at the rear of his formation. At 6.45, Tanaka got his ships into a battle column and by 9.40 penetrated the Indispensable Strait with a visual on Savo Island. At the same time, Task Force 67 entered the eastern end of the Lungle Channel. Wright got his ships into a battle column, with his cruisers 1,000 yards apart and the destroyers 4,000 yards apart, many of which formed the Vanguard. Wright, however, deviated from Kincaid's plan to use all the SG radar-equipped destroyers to form a picket line. At 10.40, Tanaka's group entered the passage south of Savo Island, where his lookouts began to sight four floatplanes going over Savo. These were Wright's. SG radar operators aboard the Minneapolis at 11.06 showed two pips bearing 284 degrees at 23,000 yards. Wright brought his ships into a tighter column by 11.08 as radar began to pick up 78 vessels. Aboard Tanaka's destroyers, all hands topside were readying the drums to be cast overboard and the ships were brought to a slower speed of around 12 knots for the drop. At 1112, Outlooks aboard the Takanami warned of possible enemy ships in sight bearing due east, prompting Tanaka at 1116 to order all unloading preparations halted and for all ships to attack the enemy. The American vanguard destroyers, torpedo men and radar operators coordinated their attack. Aboard Fletcher they discerned four enemy vessels of the first transportation unit and the Takanami. At 11.15, at a range of 7,000 yards, Commander Cole, aboard Fletcher, asked permission to fire torpedoes, and Wright hesitated for two minutes before asking, Range on bodies excessive at present? Cole replied no, that the range was satisfactory, and he received another pause until 11.20 when Wright finally granted permission to fire. That delay of five minutes proved to be fatal. Because during it, Fletcher's targets had escaped optimal targeting positions. Fletcher launched 10 Mark 15 torpedoes and two salvos alongside 8 from Perkins. The Murray would also add to theirs. But she lacked SG radar, and it would be like shooting blind. Likewise, the Drayton also fired two torpedoes blindly in the direction the other ships were firing at. Maybe she could get a lucky hit. I mean their Mark 15s, she'll be lucky if they actually explode. Before Cole could even report all fish being tossed into the water, Wright issued the open fire order, prompting all the Van destroyers to begin firing star shells, followed by salvos. The Minneapolis fired her first salvo at 11:21, and by 11:25, all of the American cruisers were firing. Eight-inch batteries were sending salvos, while secondary guns fired illumination rounds. Most of the initial salvos converged upon the Takanami, smashing her superstructure and hull. Takanami opened fire and released torpedoes, but within just four minutes, she was rendered incapacitated, drifting off ablaze. While Takanami absorbed the attention of Wright's gunners, the rest of the Japanese vessels remained untouched. The Lardner all the way up in the back of Wright's column sighted a group of Japanese destroyers, and she began to fire upon them. But they all vanished from sight. The destroyers were hugging Guadalcanal's shoreline to reduce visibility so they could unleash torpedoes. Further down the Japanese column, the flagship Naganami radioed an order from Tanaka to attack the enemy and reverse course to starboard, away from the enemy course. Naganami opened fire by 1122 and laid down smokescreen to conceal the force. The Suzukaze launched 8 torpedoes at 1123 aiming for the American gun flashes. At the head of the Japanese column was Captain Torajiro Seito, who executed one of the most professionally skilled performances of an IGN destroyer commander during the entire war. Sato did not ring up all speed and reverse course, no instead he coolly regulated his ships to go at a moderate speed and maintain a course heading down the coast, allowing Wright's cruisers to pass on the opposite course, a perfect position for torpedoes. Within their minimum wakes, low silhouettes and no gunfire, Sato's destroyers crept invisibly down the channel. At 11.28 the Kiroshio launched 2 torpedoes, followed by the Oyashio firing 8 and then another 2 by the Kiroshio again, before Saito reversed helm and increased his speed. During this course, Kagero and Makiname separated from Oreshio and Kurashio, pulling further ahead as the Nagami and the Kawakaze launched 8 torpedoes at 11.32. Thus, in 10 minutes, between 11.23 to 11.33, six of Tanaka's destroyers had launched over 44 long lances into the water. At 11.27, the Minneapolis was firing salvos, and about to make a turn when two torpedoes, most likely from the Suzukaze or the Takanami, hit her forward half. One into her aviation gas line storage tanks, and the other into her fire room number two. The Minneapolis sent a geyser of burning oil up and over the decks. Soon her power gave out alongside her steering, and fires were blazing everywhere. Captain Rosendahl recalled, A determination to bring the ship safely to port existed from the first moment of difficulty. Men rushed to put out the fires, and the Minneapolis would become a mute spectator for the rest of the battle. The spread of long lances found next the New Orleans around 30 seconds after the Minneapolis, A long lens hit New Orleans forward magazines and gasoline storage tanks. A spire of fire vaulted over the turret number one, spewing flaming oil and gasoline all over. On the bridge, Chaplain Howell Forgey recalled, I opened my eyes to find we were in a cave of fire. The great wall of flame all around me actually dried my sopping uniform in seconds. The explosion severed the entire structure forward of turret number two from the New Orleans. The bow twisted to port, steering and communications failed as New Orleans reversed course to starboard. The Pensacola, who lacked SG radar, was trying to use all the illumination rounds as guidance to fire upon the enemy. Commander Harry Keeler, upon seeing the Minneapolis and the New Orleans smashed by torpedoes, concluded their participation was over and turned Pensacola to pass them to port. This maneuver silhouetted Pensacola in front of her burning sister's ships at 1139, and there she was hit by a torpedo abreast of her main mast. She lost power, communications, and steering. Then oil was ignited, burning to death her control crews, and from the torpedo hole near her port outer shaft, she began to take on water, listing her 13 degrees. The Honolulu, despite having SG radar, had initially failed to find a target. She saw the New Orleans veering out a column and Pensacola slowing down. Captain Robert Haler swerved Honolulu around the two ships to prevent her also being silhouetted. Honolulu's gunners began firing on a target, but it soon disappeared behind a smokescreen. Honolulu then took a clockwise course around Savo, using her radar to track four enemy vessels, but these proved to be the van destroyers. Meanwhile, Fletcher's SG radar picked up two ships northwest towards Cape Esperance. Dritten's SG radar was also picking them up, and she fired four torpedoes at extremely long range, failing to score a single hit. The last cruiser in the American column, Northampton, was battering the Takanami with 8-inch shells when her lookout saw two torpedoes bearing in on her. One hit her 10 feet below the waterline, abreast of her engine room, followed by another hitting her 40 feet further aft. Honolulu's executive officer saw the scene describing it as such. A huge smoke and fire cone rose about 250 feet, and Northampton seemed to be aflame instantly. Northampton had burning oil and gasoline pouring everywhere. Her engine room began flooding, and she took a 10 degree list to port. She took a northeastern course as her crews fought the flames. The Lampson and Lardner maneuvered around the damaged cruisers looking for enemy targets to unleash their own guns and torpedoes. Four minutes before torpedoes hit Northampton, Tanaka ordered all ships to break contact with the enemy and to make a retirement. But Captain Sato's group were still screwing up Guadalcanal's coast and by 11.45 they tossed another four torpedoes into the water. The Kagero and Mikinami were moving closer to the American column when at 11.52 Kagero launched four torpedoes at what they thought was a battleship, while Mikinami failed to find a target to launch her torpedoes at. The Takanami failed to reply to any radio calls, prompting Tanaka to order Oyasho and kuyasho to go over and assist her at 12.25 on December the 1st. Captain Sato swung back around at 1am finding Takanami, but American destroyers were close by forcing Sato to cancel any rescue attempts. At 1.30am, Captain of Takanami, Toshio Shimizu, ordered abandon abandoned ship. One hundred men leapt into the water. But a large explosion and some burning oil killed many of them. Takanami sank at around 1.37am, taking Captain Shimizu, Commander Masami Ogura, and 244 of her crew. Only 33 survivors would reach Guadalcanal. Minneapolis had surprisingly light casualties for the hits that she received. Around 36 men entombed in three flooded fire rooms. New Orleans was a complete mess. The entire ship's forward was gone. Many of her crew died from asphyxiation, adding 183 to the death toll for the Americans. New Orleans crawled back to Tulagi. Pensacola had a chain of explosions occur as her crew refused to give up on her. Over 158-inch shells exploded one by one aboard the Pensacola, leading her to be out of control for over 12 hours. But in the end, her list was checked, and she managed to crawl 9 knots back to Tulagi after losing 125 crew. Northampton was flooding dangerously, and by 1.30 am, Japanese shore guns on Guadalcanal began firing upon her. Fletcher and the Drayton came to her rescue, but it would be to no avail, as by 3.04 am she twisted under her beam ends and turned bottom side up, slowly sinking. The two destroyers managed to save 716 men, bringing the Northampton death toll to 46. The Battle of Tassafaronga was not just a defeat, it was a humiliation. An inferior, cargo-entangled, and partly-surprised Destroyer Squadron had demolished a superior cruiser-destroyer group equipped with vastly better radar. Wright shouldered the responsibility, absolving his cruiser captains any blame. Halsey gave hell to Commander Cole of the Fletcher, who had fired torpedoes at extreme range and left the action instead of helping her sister cruisers. In retrospect, it seems the few minutes of hesitation on Wright's part spoiled a perfect torpedo attack. The Japanese lookout said of the initial American gunfire, American fire was inaccurate. Shells, improperly set for deflection, were especially numerous. And it is conjectured that either American marksmanship is not remarkable or else the illumination from their star shells was not sufficiently effective. Wright noted to his superiors about the performance of the Japanese torpedoes, as such. Make it improbable that torpedoes with speed-distance characteristics similar to our own could have wrought such havoc. To sum up that sentence, the Japanese torpedoes did not suck like the American ones. Wright went a step further, suggesting perhaps enemy submarines had fired the torpedoes at a closer range. Nimitz flat out conceded the Japanese simply had better torpedoes. But he, alongside countless other officials, were still failing to realize the Long Lance's range. Yes, its range was the real culprit in most of these battles. The American torpedo issue was an oversight that would plague the American Navy deep into 1943. Now, Tanaka's unit had failed to deliver the supplies on the night of November the 30th, adding some urgency to remedy this. Destroyers Arashi, Nawaki, and Yugede brought the reinforcement unit now totaling 10 vessels to try a second attempt with the drum method at 1 p.m. on December the 3rd. A coast watcher sounded the alarm, and search planes quickly found the group. Soon, eight Dauntless and seven Avengers were sent to hit Tanaka's destroyers. Twelve Pete's were tossed to intercept the Americans, but the American Wildcat escorts shot down five of them at the cost of just one Wildcat. The Dauntless and Avengers managed to inflict only light damage on the enemy and failed to stop them from dumping 1,500 drums at Tassavaranga. 310 drums in total would be lost because of American aircraft attacks. The result of the drum technique led the IGN to fine tune it. The combined fleet was now convinced the reinforcement unit required an increased screen, leading to more destroyers being allocated. Again, the metaphor I made before about the IGN basically cutting off its own limbs to feed itself. Allocating destroyers or submarines for transportation of supplies meant that they weren't performing offensive operations with the rest of the fleet. And now the Japanese fleet was more vulnerable to American attacks. Add to this the fact they were already on the defensive. They had lost the initiative in the war. This was becoming more and more a war of attrition and one that they wouldn't win. But that's enough of that, because now we need to swing back to New Guinea. Back on November the 24th, the Japanese had landed the Yamazaki unit, consisting of 80 soldiers who were deployed at the southern end of Gona to repel the Australian attacks. General Adachi placed Major General Yamagata Tsuyo of the 21st Independent Mixed Brigade to be in charge of the Buna Group. Yamagata departed Rabaul on November the 29th with the 1st Battalion of the 170th Regiment, but his four destroyers were met by three waves of 12 flying fortresses. The destroyers had no air cover, leading to one sustaining terrible damage, and another was set on fire. The two injured destroyers had to return to Rabaul, with the other two trying to evade continued air attacks until they too were driven off. Thus, the reinforcement for Gona was never made. On the other side, Brigadier Ether was increasing his numbers to hit Gona with the 21st Brigade of Brigadier Doherty being relieved by the 25th Brigade. Things were not improving for the Australians. Day after day, artillery and motor bombardment would be followed up by ground attacks, making little to no gain. On the 28th, the 2nd Battalion of the 14th Brigade and the 2nd and 14th Battalion of the 21st Brigade reached Ether's position and they began to move northeast to heat Gona from the east. As they were marching to their assembly area, they ran into some heavy fire from non-combatants defending Banumi village. The village was a satellite citadel, well positioned with good firing posts. The advance patrol took heavy casualties from what they described as... A Hornet's Nest of Concealed Positions Despite the defenders' valiant efforts, the next day they were hit with motors and rifle fire devastating their line. The Australians attempted a bayonet charge, and they were cut down. A machine gun post was hit hard, forcing the Japanese team to flee for shelter. The Australians tried to advance under the cover of smoke, but still, by nightfall, they could not overrun the defenders. The defenders, meanwhile, were losing heart. The next morning, ten of them tried to escape along the beach, leading to five getting shot. Throughout the day, defenders were picked off as the Australians began to focus on infiltrating Gona. The Banumi village defenders sent out a patrol in the afternoon to probe the Australian lines, but it was quickly ambushed. Soon after, the Australians unleashed their endgame. An advance was made after an artillery and motor barrage, and the few defenders remaining knew the jig was up. They broke out running. Some went to the sea, others into the jungle. Countless swimmers were shot. Those fleeing into the jungle, they fared a bit better. As the 2 and 14th were overrunning Benumi village, Dorothy was deploying the 2 and 27th battalion on the western bank of Small Creek to hit Gona from the east. Simultaneously to the west, the 3rd and 2 and 33rd battalions were attacking the Japanese defenses. Their assault softened the Japanese defensive lines, but they were forced to withdraw. Ether had deployed the 2 and 16th Chaw Force on the western bank of the Gona Creek back on November the 21st making Gona a real siege from all sides. The chaff force enjoyed a lot of artillery and aerial support, but they were also in an exposed and isolated position. At one point, the Japanese successfully counterattacked their gun nest in a coconut palm belt, sending them withdrawing across the Gona Creek. It was a very frustrating and maddening fight against such a well-concealed defensive position, leading one Australian sergeant to recall, through three attacks at Gona, I didn't even see a bloody chap. Nonetheless, the defenders were isolated. Their communications to the South Seas Force HQ at Gurua was severed. Major Kowai was eventually instructed to stage a rescue by sea of the Gona forces. Two companies of his 2nd Battalion, around 120 men, left San Ananda in three barges on the night of November the 30th, reaching the beach along Gona at midnight. They were unable to identify the landing point because of the dark, and to illuminate meant to draw allied machine gun fire from the shore. Thus, they were returned back to San Ananda, failing to rescue anyone. The next morning, A-20s and B-17 flying fortresses inflicted heavy casualties upon the defenders, followed up by an offensive by the 2-27th. The 2-27th, as always, were met with intense machine gun fire, and only managed to seize a couple of footholds over the beach before being brought to a halt. Meanwhile, Lieutenant Hattie and the Cha Force had repelled several Japanese attempts to land reinforcements in their vicinity. Hattie personally operated a 2-inch motor to deadly effect and eventually his force managed to seize Kikori Village, then Napopo Village. At Napopo Village, they repelled the vanguard of the 1st Battalion 41st Regiment, which had been marching from the mouth of the Kamusi River. From that point onwards, Napopo was called Hattie's Village. On December the 1st, the 2 and 27th resumed their offensive under the cover of smoke with their bayonets fixed. They attempted an infiltration of the defenders' lines at its center, and they were dished heavy casualties, forced to retreat across the Gona Creek. During the night, Yamagata and his 3rd battalion of the 170th regiment arrived, this time given proper air cover for their destroyers. They landed at Basubua, but increased allied aircraft attacks forced them to relocate to the mouth of the Kamusi River, and further south towards Gona. For the next few days, the tide of battle of attrition at Gona was beginning to turn. Endless mornings of Allied artillery and motor bombardments were wearing the defenders down. The stench of the dead was horrible. The Japanese could not move the bodies from their bunkers. Every barrage was followed up with an assault, and while the Japanese machine guns repelled the majority, each day saw occasional posts being seized. Sometimes counterattacks recovered lost posts, But as the days went by, the Japanese defensive lines were being whittled down until the Australians controlled the entire beach line running east from Gona. Diarrhea and malaria was taking its toll on the Japanese, who were trapped within their bunkers. By December the 5th, they were now squeezed into a very small area. Over in the Sandinanda front, the American forces had cut off Colonel Tsukamoto's forces, who had held their positions since the 21st without reinforcements nor reliable supplies. They were short on food, weapons, ammunition, dependent on just a trickle of supplies that came down the kiloton track from time to time. Malaria and diarrhea were running amongst the starving men. One private named Yokoyama recalled, We were all skin and bone, as if our stomachs were stuck to the inside wall of our backs. Our pelvic bones stuck out too. We all suffered non-stop diarrhea, We dug holes to put our buttocks and pelvises over and lay down on them when sleeping at night. Any overnight excretion would drip into the hole. Yes, the often not-so-talked-about dirty nature of the Pacific War. Yokoyama also went on to recall the rice supply had become so dire, they began counting each grain. Each soldier would eat a porridge of fern buds with some rice floating in it. Soldiers close enough to the sea could obtain salt. Those further inland had no opportunity for clean water. Many were forced to drink water seeping into a hole from the water table contaminated by their own fecal matter and corpses. Yokoyama recalled, We talked about food every day. Like how much we missed Japanese food and craved plain rice, pickles, miso soup, sushi, and so on. Ironically, most of us starved to death. The Americans were reinforced by anti-tank and cannon companies by November 29th under the command of Major Bernd Beitzke, whose left wing was called the Baitke Detachment. Baitke's men began an offensive on the 30th, gaining some ground. Captain John Shirley led his I Company alongside the anti-tank company and a light machine gun section of M Company in a deadly bayonet charge that finally pierced the enemy defenses. Shirley's force managed to set up a defensive perimeter astride the track just due south of Cape Killerton, thus dividing the Japanese defenses into two positions. The rest of the Beitki detachment was held down in a bush 1,400 yards west of the roadblock, but their supply line would be at risk. Because of this, Captain Meredith Huggins was sent with a ration party to move supplies up the roadblock. By the 1st of December, the Japanese began tossing counterattacks at Shirley's position, effectively holding Shirley's men down from gaining any more ground. Unfortunately, Shirley's perimeter was established in a fairly open space in the midst of some swampy jungle surrounded by tall trees making it very vulnerable to snipers and surprise attacks. One counter-attack claimed Shirley's life, leading Huggins to take command and the roadblock thus bore his name for the next month. Over in Buna, General Harding was preparing to launch an offensive November the 30th, supported by some closely integrated artillery led by Major General Albert Waldron. The artillery were Australian. Two 25-pounders and two howitzers forward of Hariko, four other guns near Ango, and one 105 mm howitzer that had just landed at Dobudura on the 29th was en route to support. The Warren force began its offensive met by the typical concealed bunker onslaught that had been seen for days. As the Warren force threw itself at the bunkers, the Urbana force was marching towards the swamps above the triangle. Colonel Motz led the men to the southeastern edge of their objective, but two companies, E and G, got lost in the swamps. The start of the American offensive would see a large interruption because of a sudden shift of command as General Harding was just getting sacked. I would like to take this time to remind all of you that this podcast is only made possible through the efforts of Kings and Generals over at YouTube. Please go subscribe to Kings and Generals over at YouTube and continue to help us produce this content by checking out www.patreon.com slash kingsandgenerals. Don't forget about our other sister podcast over at the Age of Conquest, the Fall and Rise of China podcast, written and narrated by me. And if after all that, you are still hungry for some more history, why don't you check out my personal channel, the Pacific War Channel over at YouTube, where I just finished up a series on many of the medals of honor earned at Guadalcanal, and I'm now starting a multi-part series on China's warlord era. Give it a look, it'll mean a lot to me. The Battle of Tassafuranga was a devastating and humiliating defeat for a superior carrier-destroyer American force, against a smaller destroyer force entangled with transports. The battle for Bunagona raged on, costing countless lives, but soon the defenders would be whittled down to the bone.